Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. This is a really unique and fun episode. Um, I am coming to you from London, England, and I am uh, so excited. We've been on a trade mission. We've had amazing experiences, and we are here now in London having meetings with, with people here on the ground, making connections through our Utah companies as well as, as uh, you know, government relationships. Um, we are learning new things and, and how to do things and how we can collaborate better. And today in, in that vein, we, I'm so excited to have a podcast here in London, um, with Deanna Davidson, MP. Uh, she's par- parliamentary undersecretary of state leveling up. And so we're going to talk about leveling up. I'm just learning about it. I've read about it a little bit, but welcome to the show, Deanna. Thank you so much. No, this is uh, this is really great. I think, you know, forging these links internationally is so important. Um, so we can learn from each other, learn best practice, figure out, you know, what you guys do well, what, what we do well, uh, share those learnings and all move forward together. Yeah, I love it. It's, uh, you know, and, and as my listeners know that, you know, I love the idea of getting proximate. Uh, you have a very unique story and, and I can't wait to hear it. And, and and I love uh, the way we can share and and make some connections about um, where we have commonality and where we can learn from each other. So let's let's get started. I love to I love to get started and, and talk about you personally. Uh, tell me about yourself, where you grew up, a little bit about your family, your background, all that kind of thing. All well, that as, stuff. as a politician, I love talking about myself. So I'm sure this will be my, <laughs> my, my favorite bit. No, um, so I grew up um, in a city called Sheffield, which used to be um, a huge steel manufacturing city, um, which saw kind of a huge decline sort of before I was born. So it was a city that needed to find its kind of new new reason for existing, really. Um, in a very kind of humble household I grew up in, um, you know, I guess working class would be what we sort of refer to ourselves as. My, my whole family, you know, my parents worked multiple jobs to try and see us through. Um, and it, to me, it just felt like a very normal upbringing, which I think, I guess, is, you know, what, what everyone thinks um, relative to our own experiences anyway. Um, so my mum and dad were great. My father was self-employed. Um, he was a stonemason. And I think his kind of Self-employment was a huge kind of motivator for me. The fact that he was so sort of get up and go, huge aspirations, and one of the most hardworking people I know. Um, so that really kind of inspired me right throughout my life. Um, and then I moved from Sheffield uh, to uh, Hull, which is another city um, based around kind of ports and sort of fishing. Um, when I went to university uh, to study British politics and legislative studies, everything I do has a long title, but effectively <laughs> British politics um, was, was what I studied. Um, I was the first in my family to go to university. So that was a really kind of big step for the family. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and then from then on, I had a bit of a, a slightly more unusual journey. In the, at the age of 20, um, I was uh, approved to stand uh, as a candidate for the Conservative Party um, for Parliament, which at 20 is kind of crazy. It's not something that, that happens to, to many, if any, people. Um, and at 21, I stood in, in a general election. And that journey has kind of continued. So, you know, they say uh, you have to take the knocks and learn from them. I, I lost twice before I won, but eventually at the age of 26, um, I became uh, the Member of Parliament for Bishop Auckland. Um, and I think you know, one of the youngest sort of female MPs that we've had. So I think I'm about the third youngest, which is great. We've got a really great young intake in this time around. Um, and it's been, uh, it's been an incredible journey, really, since then. Wow. Uh, so you've, you talked a lot about, um, you know, maybe the, the British, how this works. I think most of us in the U.S., have no clue 
<laughs> I, and maybe I'm just the speaking, feelings probably mutual. Okay, yeah, <laughs> because it's you know there there's some words that maybe equate and some you know titles that maybe we we can equate. So you know MP, just explain maybe a little bit about what that what that means because I think most of us would maybe equate it to to a member of of Congress. Um, you know, not the Senate side, the House of Representatives side. I, I, I think that's maybe the the comparison. Yeah, no, that that, that is right. So I, I always say, if I meet sort of American delegations, that I'm sort of roughly the equivalent of a congressman. Um, and then also now as a minister, I'm sort of in the in the, the kind of sort of uh, federal government as well, just okay. to add confusion to things. Um, so I, you know, am elected by my kind of local area. Um, they send me to legislature. They send me to parliament. Um, and I do what I can to try and make their lives better. Mm, yeah, that's amazing. Um, so I want to go back to what um, what inspired you. And you you talked a little bit about your influence of your family, especially mm-hmm. your dad, um, and, and his hard work. And I and I can really uh, relate to that. My my dad was uh, well. He he worked at the bank, but he was actually a farmer. And, and but you have to you have to be a banker. You have to have you know where I am. You, <laughs> You, I grew up in a little small town, um, but you kind of had to have a job to support your farming habit. So, <laughs> so that's kind of how we rolled. But um, my dad uh, was probably the hardest working person I ever I ever knew, and and my mom as well. And so, talk a little bit maybe about how that. Um, informed your journey and what you wanted to, to do and did you always want to do is was this the path you were aiming for oh gosh on, on the latter question absolutely not yeah. um I, I like most sort of young people I went through phases so I wanted to be a race car driver and an astronaut for a while oh. when I was really little <laughs> um then I really wanted to become an author and that's something that one day I'm determined to actually finish my novel and get published um and then I went through various journeys so uh, at one point I decided I wanted to join the police Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that stuck with me for a long time. And, and the reason for that, not, not to get too dark, um, when I was 13, my father was killed by a single punch, which is something that you kind of see on movies, but you never expect it actually happens in real life. Um, he was out with his friends. Um, things got a little bit a little bit spicy. This guy threw one punch and my dad was dead before he hit the ground. Um, so it was such a shock to the family and really kind of shaped my formative years. Um, it, I think you go one of two ways when a tragedy happens. You kind of fall to pieces and go down the wrong path, or it really pulls you together and makes you incredibly determined. Um, and thankfully, it could have gone either way. Um, I took the second path, and it made me really determined to kind of um, do him proud, um, but also to fight for justice for other people who go through similar kind of um, experiences. Because one of the things we know about the kind of one-punch assault kind of area is that the sentencing is incredibly low. Um, people who kind of commit these crimes will often be out of prison in sort of 18 months, which doesn't feel fair when a life has been taken. Um, so I've decided that I wanted to do something to help other families who'd gone through that. So the police to me seemed the natural thing because um, the police, the family liaison officers who'd helped my own family were so fundamental to us getting through that really difficult time. I thought maybe this is the way that I can, I can help others. Um, and then totally by accident, um, at 16, I kind of discovered politics at school. I'd never been into politics. My family were not political. My parents had never voted. My grandparents were kind of classic swing voters. Um, we'd never discussed politics at home. Uh, we'd never discussed it around the dinner table. We didn't have a dinner table. You know, it was sort of TV dinners, but we never yeah. discussed politics. Um, so I kind of discovered it by accident and thought, okay, well, this is, this is it. This is the thing that I can do. If I get involved in politics, I can help change the law on this. I can help spread awareness about this. I can, you know, try and prevent this happening to other people. Um, and so it really drove me from then. So it's kind of a, incredible how one kind of small action seemingly can kind of shape your whole life, really. 
Yeah, that's incredible. And, and, and what a powerful story and, and the way you've, you've overcome such a tragedy and, and, you know, made, made a, a, a real path forward for yourself. I, I absolutely, you know, that, that feels very American to me. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. And, you know, that, 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 and, you know, I think I was so influenced by my dad is such a central figure anyway, but when that happened, I really drew from the values that he kind of brought me up with. So that, that sense of hard work, aspiration, you know, really wanting to do the best for you and for your family and make things better for the next generation, that, that was really kind of what drove him. And I think that's kind of why I became a kind of British conservative in that they, to me, were the values that I felt were best expressed. You know, the values that I'd been brought up with were best expressed by that party at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, people often ask me that, you know, as a working class girl, why did you go that way in politics? And in, in Britain, sort of traditionally, um, that wouldn't be the way. You tend to, towards the Labour Party, um, the other party. Uh, but yeah, it's... it's uh, Shape me a lot. Yeah, talk a little bit about, I mean, I think we, again, I, I always love to define uh, vocabulary that we use, define words that we use, because um, I, I find that we we tend to not understand each other because we're not working from the same definitions of words. Um, and so I, I see this a lot in, in our political discourse mm. where, um, you know, I, I may, I may de- define conservative as, as one thing, and somebody else may define it in another way. So talk maybe a little bit about this, you know, you, you say conservative, uh, to us in the U.S., it, it, it may mean something different. To us in Utah, it may m- mean something even more different. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about what, what that means here in Britain, what mm-hmm. that means to you personally, maybe those two ideologies. It's really interesting because obviously there is a dictionary definition of sort of small C conservatism, which I think we would all share and and kind of understand. Um, But one of the things I love about the the kind of conservative party in in Britain, the sort of party that I I represent, is it's a really broad church. So it comes from these values of kind of um, aspiration, hard work, uh, kind of, you know, fiscal responsibility, low taxes, things that I think, you know, Broadly, everyone in broadly everyone in my party would support. Um, but actually, there's a whole range of people on this spectrum. So I personally actually consider myself like really socially liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, there are others within my party that are much more socially conservative. But the fact is, we can all kind of coexist together around the same kind of core values. Um, I get told quite a lot on social media, which is you know the the uh, apparently the the kind of font of all truth according yes. to some people. <laughs> but I'd say the font of all abuse. I think um, that I should you know leave my party and join the the liberals because you know you're not really a true conservative. You're really a liberal. You know you support LGBT rights. You support women's rights. So like why why are you here? Go, go, you know you're not a true conservative. And I think that's the thing that I always try and get across in that our party is so broad. Mm-hmm. It's about sharing the values that we do share, really promoting them and working together to try and make the country a better place. Um, so I hope that's helpful. No, that's um, really helpful. And, and honestly, just, I, I, I really connect with that because, you know, we, we maybe, you know, my husband and I kind of fall into a, a similar category mm-hmm. where we, we're trying to bring people together and, and, and maybe not use, um, language that, that divides, but, mm-hmm. but trying to bring language in and, and, and speak in things in a way that is more um, bring, brings people together, I guess. Mm. And so I love that what you're saying is that there's this place for everyone in your party. Um, and also I love you talked about social media <laughs> being the, the place be, that I find, and, and I'd love for you to see if this is the same here um, and your, in, in your experience. I find that 
social media uh, makes us feel like there's an extreme voice that's more outsized than mm-hmm. it really is. I mean, th- it feels more, it feels like this echo chamber. And when I get out and talk to actual people, I find there's, we call it the exhausted majority mm-hmm. who don't really share those extreme ideologies, but really just want to get things done and want to, you know, love their country, love, you know, feel patriotic, but also are being disheartened by what they're seeing in the public sphere, in the, in social media mm-hmm. and in the media, you know, and so maybe talk a little bit about, is, is that been your experience? Or are you seeing that as well? I, I think there definitely is something to be said for social media being that sort of echo chamber. And I think the problem with it, uh, it, it is so easy to be anonymous and to say something on a screen that you would never say to someone face to face or that you would never say over the phone or whatever. Um, and I think that really empowers people to be strong in their beliefs, which it, on the one hand is a good thing, you know, but on the other hand, I think it drives off people who don't want to be abused. So the, the exhausted majority is, I think you just worded it, which is a great phrase, which I'm going to steal from now <laughs> <Yes>. on. Um, <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who just don't use social media in that way. They might look at, look at it to, you know, communicate with friends or to look at the news or whatever, but don't engage in that sort of sort of debate and, and sort of narrative, um, which I think is really damaging. And I think also the actual technology itself is kind of um, really kind of set up in that echo chamber way and that the algorithms say, you like things from people who say this one particular argument. We're going to show you more things from people who say this one particular argument and suddenly kind of organically it grows into that echo chamber. Um, You know, there are so many times when I have said Twitter is not real life. Um, You need to get out there and speak to real people. You know, not only are there loads of people who just don't use social media, there are lots who will watch and not say. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it's an important tool. It's an important tool for communicating. I think as a politician, it's important to be on it, to... um, to kind of uh, to broadcast and publish and tell people what you're up to. I tend not to use it so much for going back and forth because mm-hmm. I think all it does is wind everyone up rather yep. than um, actually bringing any kind of light to any arguments. Um, but I think, yeah, no, I really like Exhaust the Majority. That's really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and I think when you hear that, everyone feels it. They're like, yes, we are exhausted. Um, I want to continue talking about this and especially what you're, what you're up to um, with leveling up. And uh, we'll do that when we come right back. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. We're here with Deanna Davidson, MP, Parliament Undersecretary of State, leveling up. We are, I want to talk about leveling up. You um, and, our, and our delegation is here to meet and learn more about this. And, and we're thrilled about it. Um, we love what you're doing. Again, young politician, uh, conservative politician that is, that is doing some really powerful work here and, and something that we really connect with. Um, in my initiative and show up, we, we are doing a lot around the most vulnerable. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we, we really want to, to, uh, make sure that they have a voice and, and really, you know, so I, I do things with, with unified sports, with the Special Olympics where my heart is. I love it so much. Um, with foster care, um, with our foster families and, and our educators, our teachers. Um, these, are, these are populations that I feel sometimes don't have the voice and, and maybe aren't, aren't you know, being listened to and, and, and helped in the way that I, I want to help them. So um, talk a little bit about how we connect with it. I think leveling up is that same 
um, sort of idea, where are the folks that need us the most and how do we help them? So maybe talk a little bit what it is, uh, all, all the things about it. Well, it, it's so important. So I, I get asked as sort of leveling up minister all the time. Yeah, but what does leveling up really mean? And to me, it's it works because it's so simple and the simplicity in it is effectively that no matter where you are born, no matter what kind of family you come from, no matter your race, your gender, your sexuality, you should have the same opportunities as everyone else to get on in life. Whether you make it, it's down to you, it's down to your hard work and what have you, but those opportunities should be there. Um, and we know in Britain that it's a very unequal society. There is huge inequalities between different regions, between sort of towns and cities. And so we recognise that we really needed to do something about that. Um, and to me, it's been something that's really driven me sort of ever since I was young and I came from very humble beginnings. I was very lucky. I, I won a scholarship to a private school. I saw a lot of my friends go to the sort of uh, less good schools nearby and the, the different opportunities that I had versus them to me never seemed fair. So it's sort of really driven me in this role to really try and do something about it. Um, so last year, my department published what we call the leveling up white paper, which effectively is kind of our roadmap to achieving better um, equality, I guess, mm. better equality of those opportunities. And it brings in all kinds of things. So it's about health, it's about education, it's about pay, it's about productivity, it's about transport. Because if there are good jobs, but you can't get to them, what's the point of them being there, right? Um, so it's it's sort of working, not just in my department, but right across the government, um, at national level, at kind of local level, to really bring together our best ideas and try and close some of these gaps. It is a big mission. Yes. <laughs> it is going to take time. Um, our white paper sort of takes us to 2030, and we've, we've sort of set out key missions to towards 2030 that we're making really good progress on um, but we've got a long way to go um, and everyone has different ideas about how this should work which is great um, but I think the important thing is I think you know right across politics so whether you're uh, you know Labour or Conservative or Democrat or Republican I think we all address this something uh, recognise apologies this is something that we need to address mm. um, and it's good that there's that sort of unity um, it's just about finding unity on exactly how we do it yeah so what's the what kind of pushback? I mean, clearly you're getting pushback, and especially I would guess, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, um, from your own party. Um, you know, in in our conservative politics in the U.S., it's it's really hard to get even your same party to agree that that, that this is this is an issue, and this is where we should put resources. This is what we should do. We're we're having a lot of um, debates, and, and and maybe you are too around. Um, you know, the equity and opportunity. And, that, and that's where we are, you know, as, a, as an administration in Utah, we're all about, um, we're, we, we don't guarantee equal outcomes, mm -hmm. but what we want to do is give equal opportunities. Absolutely. So maybe talk a little bit about the, the struggles that you're, that you're uh, maybe you're seeing. So I, I think politically, we're in a relatively good place. Um, as I say, there's sort of cross-party unity on this as an agenda that we should be following. Um, and in my own party, it was right at the forefront of our manifesto back in 2019. So the manifesto on which I was elected and all of my colleagues indeed were elected. Leveling up was right at the forefront in those exact words. You know, we will do what we can to, to level up the country, um, which is great. The, the question is, how do we do it? Yeah. And that's where there are sometimes some disagreements. And that could be things like, do we prioritise urban inner cities do we prioritize rural areas every area has its own challenges right um and so that prioritization is is really difficult because everyone can make an incredibly good case um there are areas that on paper may look you know more wealthy but actually they've got huge challenges with productivity or with transport whatever it might be so our challenge is to try and address it in the right sort of way um 
I wouldn't say that we've got all the answers. I wouldn't say we've got everything right, but certainly at every step of the way, we try and refine what we're doing to make it work better and to make it work for the most vulnerable and to make it work for the most deprived. Um, and it's hard, so it's, but, it, but I think sometimes the challenges that are the most important are the toughest, but that shouldn't put you off trying to address them. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you know, there's so much that we do around uh, that idea that, you know, I hear people say with our foster care uh, situation in, in the U.S. And, and especially in Utah, we actually have less um, less foster kids per capita than than most of the states. And so for us, it's like, how do we how do we address that? It seems impossible. And to me, it's like, how do you stop the abuse? How do you get upstream of why they're having to be removed? Mm -hmm. What are the the drug issue. I mean, there's so much that, that you can look at, but you have to start somewhere. Absolutely. You have to start somewhere and people, you know, it, it, we can be, you know, it's the mother Teresa. It's the, you know, like, why are you doing this? And well, I'm going to help one individual at mm -hmm. a time. So talk maybe a little bit about your motivation. How do you keep motivated when it gets, when it gets tough and, <laughs> and when you get the criticism and the, and the hard things? Because it's so important. It's what we have to do, right? Um, I think anyone who is minded to kind of go into public service, you do have this sort of mentality that you've just outlined there that, you know, if you can help one person, that's where it starts. Um, you help one, then you help two, then suddenly it's 10 and, you know, then it's a whole community. Um, I think it's that. It, it, it's kind of the individual stories, I think, that, that kind of keep you going, the, the individuals that you've helped. So, you know, I could talk a big game about how many billion pounds we put into projects over here, but what does that mean? Because yeah. that means nothing to the person on the ground. What it means to the person on the ground is... They were really struggling with um, access to disabled play facilities for their children. Mm -hmm. And we gave some money to a park in Northern Ireland that has now got disabled play facilities mm -hmm. that their kids can use. That's the story that, that really makes this stuff worthwhile. Um, and as a kind of constituency member of parliament with my own kind of constituents, it's the individuals that you manage to help. It's the person who, um, you know, their family member had a terminal illness and they were trying to do one last holiday and their passport didn't come back in time. And we helped them get that passport. Mm -hmm. It came sort of 24 hours before their holiday, which is very stressful, <laughs> but... It's that, it's those stories. And, you know, despite all the abuse, despite the stress, despite the hard work of it, you are so motivated by those individuals and the people that you're actually able to help. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you help individuals and then suddenly you can pull together a plan of how to help more individuals. And then suddenly you're helping a community and then just build on it. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying it's easy. And some days you wake <laughs> up and, you know, you do have moments where you think, oh my gosh, why am I doing this? Yes. Oh, wow. But then one of those stories happens again. One of those things happens again. And suddenly the motivation's right back there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about specific parts of leveling up that you're working on. I know housing is one of them. Um, maybe talk a little bit about uh, those specific um, areas in, in, in the way that leveling up is is going forward there is so much i could yeah. sit here for like two hours and give like a full-on ted talk about yeah, this yeah. um um so as i said we set out our sort of framework um to look at the different factors so pay productivity uh transport etc um and it's kind of how do we best facilitate that so um Every minister has their own slice and every minister is expected to contribute to this, given it's a whole government agenda. For me, a big part of what I do is around kind of redevelopment and regeneration. So um, we have some funds available that are going out to places all over the country to try and um, redevelop their town centres. You know, mm -hmm. we know that high streets have had a really hard time of late mm -hmm. with, with COVID and moved towards kind of online shopping, which mm -hmm. is a very convenient, good thing in many ways. But actually for our high streets, it's not been that beneficial. So we're doing a lot of work on there to try and breathe new life in through, um, you know, putting in cash to help redevelop, reshape, put in new technologies, etc. Um, bring in more business support as well. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't think 
government money should be spent for the sake of it. It's about using gov government money to leverage private investment as well so that everyone's working together for the same goals. Um, we are doing stuff around housing redevelopment as well, but both in terms of, you know, building new houses because we need them, um, but also redeveloping places that, um, that kind of just need that help, places that were built many years ago and really need some support, be it on energy efficiency or, or what have you. Um, there's a lot going on. I could talk about way more. I really could. I, I, I don't want to go too in-depth yeah. because uh, we would be here for hours. Um, but safe to say, you know, we are really committed to this as an agenda um, and it's going to take time. We recognize it's going to take time, but I'm so excited to be a part of it. Oh, good. That, I, I love that you're, I mean, I feel like we've got to start somewhere and I feel like, you know, you, you talked about that you came in with maybe a, a younger uh, cohort of, of MPs that are that are working on this. Um, I, I, I think it's time for a new generation of, of, of folks to to start working on the problems. Um, you know, what are you, what are you seeing in terms of um, maybe the, the young people? Are you seeing that is there a push for for maybe some different policies? As it, as it relates to the, the things you're working on, I think, uh, I think we certainly are in Utah. We're the youngest state in the nation. Um, so we, we feel like there's, there's an energy to, to, to maybe move some things forward that haven't been happening or, or, you know, that are, that aren't working well. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Well, I always find it baffling that people say young people aren't interested in politics. Mm. They might not say they're interested in politics. They might not follow every twist and turn of the Senate or the Congress or whatever. They are interested in issues and mm -hmm. issues. Every issue is political, right? So they might be interested in climate change. They might be interested in, you know, local jobs and skills or education or tuition fees or whatever it might be. Young people are really interested in yes. politics. They yeah. might just not have converted it in their mind to politics. And I think that's something that I find so fascinating you know you see things on you know tiktok probably the youngest sort of social media channel that we have kids are talking about political stuff day in day out they really want to make change um and it could be on any issue i i you know you see a lot on tiktok around lgbt rights which is an issue that i'm very passionate about um where people do want to make things better they want to make kind of you know that, that whole sort of young, naive, I want to make the world a better place. But they do. They really yes. do. Um, and we really need to harness that. And I think it was actually incredible in, um, in the election in 2019 where I was elected to see, uh, I think there were 10 MPs under the age of 30, which doesn't sound many in, uh, in a sort of a body of 650. But actually, that's huge compared to what we would normally see. Um, people with, you know, great energy and new ideas. And you need experience. You need people who've lived and, and, and have that sort of long-term business experience, legal experience, whatever it may be. But you also need young people with fresh ideas, fresh thinking, and actually who understand technology, because we know that's a bit yes. of an issue sometimes <laughs> amongst older generations too. Indeed. Um, and just different ways of communicating as well. Um, so I have had kind of both positive and negative uh, feedback on my kind of use of social media. Mm. When I first got elected, I was very active on it because I felt it was a really good way to communicate with different audiences, mm -hmm. which is something that we need to do. Um, because if I can convince young people who care about an issue that actually... You could help shape that if you get interested in politics. Yeah. That's going to bring in more people with fresh ideas, which mm -hmm. I think can only ever be a good thing. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I see it with my own kids that are, that are, you know, 20 somethings right now, my older ones, and just, um, they are very interested. They don't want to have anything to do with politics. As have far they, as have like, they been put off, dare I ask? Oh, you, you, just a little <laughs> bit, you know, when they've watched their their dad go through a, a really hard political election, and yeah. you know, they see the social media, they see the things that are said and 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 put on there about their about their family, but also they they get frustrated. You're exactly right. I mean, they my kids are very frustrated with 
things that are going on. And they're very passionate also like you around LGBTQ rights issues and, and things like that. So they're very, um, they do care about a lot mm-hmm. of issues. Um, and I think it's important for us to have that perspective. Um, I love, I love talking to my kids about, about all kinds of issues. Um, this has been a, such a great conversation. I want to continue the conversation. I was thinking you, you mentioned something about um, different communities being impacted by COVID and, and the way we move forward. Um, I, I want to go back to COVID, um, and I'll do that when we come right back. We're back here on First Lady and Friends with Deanna Davidson, MP, uh, Parliament Undersecretary of State, leveling up. It's a nice, short, snappy title. Yes. <laughs> We, I've noticed that here. We, you guys have great titles. They're they're uh, very descriptive, so we love it. Um, yeah, I, I always feel weird because people always introduce me as first lady. I'm like, please just call me Abby because <laughs> it feels weird. I got that. Um, so uh, we, it's been such a great conversation. Thank you again for taking the time. But I want to go back to this idea of COVID. I. I I don't think we can, I mean, there's going to be research, there's going to be books, there's going to be so much written mm. on COVID. I, to me, it's one of those things that um, we're, I don't think we're ever going to fully, or at least not for a really long time, fully understand the effects mm-hmm. that it's had in every aspect of our life. Um, and that it's global. I, to me, I mean, you have incidents, you have things that happen. I mean, even maybe 9-11 could be one of those that was sort yeah. of global, but it really was the U.S. Um, it happened on our soil. It didn't really happen to anybody else. Um, it, you know, affects a lot of the things that mm-hmm. happened thereafter. But, I mean, there's really nothing like it, that every person basically on the globe was affected in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it's wild. And not just every person, but every community, the way we do things, the way, you know, we move forward. But let's maybe talk a little bit about you know, what you're seeing in your communities. Um, we saw it certainly in the U.S. and in Utah, we saw the pulling apart of physically, clearly. But emotionally, mentally, we're, we're wired for connection and there's some trauma mm-hmm. in our communities. So maybe talk a little bit about what you're seeing. It's, um, it's difficult. And as you say, I think, I think we still haven't in any way seen the full effect yeah. yet. Um, it was just terrible, wasn't it? I mean, the, the uncertainty at the beginning when this thing was kind of coming, but we weren't really sure what it was, how bad it would be. The, the fear mm-hmm. that you might catch this thing and that, that, that might be it, you know? Yeah. Um, because we just didn't know. It was so novel and new. And the speed at which I think it swept through the entire world was, was terrifying. Um, lockdown was really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, if you could go back, I guess, four or five years and say, you know, the prime minister or the president would be on the TV saying, stay in your house, do not see your family, do not see your friends, uh, only go out to buy essentials or whatever. I would have said you were mad, you know, I just said that that will never happen. You know, in in both our societies, we, freedom is right at the heart of what we do, right? So to be told you can't leave your own home was, was crazy, but absolutely the right thing at the time, because we didn't know how dangerous the thing was, right? Um, there's going to be a lot of lessons learned. And right now our COVID inquiry has just started in Britain mm. to, to kind of look into things that went well, things that didn't go well, so that we can learn lessons in case, touch wood, heaven yes. forbid, yes. anything like this happens again, which is absolutely the right thing to do, right? Um, in terms of my own community, I mean, it was hard. <laughs> yes. 
but and it was and we heard some incredibly harrowing stories mm -hmm. from my own constituents things that they face you know not being able to see loved ones while they were in on their last days missing funerals yeah. etc it was it was a horrendous but in amongst the, the kind of crippling darkness of it, there were these points of light, which was communities coming together in a way that I don't think I've ever seen on such a scale before. Mm. So, you know, we had um, uh, businesses that, uh, you know, the profit-making businesses, takeaways, restaurants, etc., who completely shifted their business models. So they mm. weren't actually selling to the general public, but they were going and delivering meals to people in hospitals mm. uh, and taking meals to doctors and frontline kind of staff like police just to make sure they were fed in amongst all the crazy hours they were working. We saw that. We saw um, people making a list of their elderly neighbours so that they could go and do shopping for them. We saw um, donations of all kinds of things, you know, food, nappies, whatever it might be, just to try and support their neighbours. And it happened on a really kind of organic scale, which was amazing because often these things take coordination. Often there has to be like that one large voice who says, I am going to fix all this and you know, we'll have a database or a network or a spreadsheet, whatever. It just happens. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the kind of real rays of light that I hope we don't lose post-COVID in that, you know, communities really did come together. You helped your neighbor, not because you needed to, but because it was the right thing to do mm -hmm. um, and because we were all in that together. Um, and I think one other kind of, if I can call it a ray of light, but one positive to have come from it is our kind of move towards um, digital and mm -hmm. kind of zooming which I think has made so much possible mm -hmm. that wouldn't have been possible before um, I've attended conferences all over the world now on zoom which I would never have done before yeah. because the technology though it existed we didn't really use it yeah. so I think there are opportunities that have come from that too but the aftermaths I mean you know uh, things like education is probably one of the areas where I'm kind of the most um, concerned I mean we are doing a lot to try and help people catch up um, kids miss a lot of time in classrooms. Um, so we need to do all we can to try and help them sort of catch up and recover their education. Not for the sake of passing exams, but because it's the right thing to do, that they're well-educated for the sake of their you know, future life and stuff. And I think some of the kids who had it hardest were those who were kind of right towards the end of school, maybe going to go on to, to university, to college, who not only missed out on all the kind of leaving school prom yeah. kind of yeah. events, but then also their first year of college was completely tainted by this because they were stuck in their rooms and stuff. I think emotionally and mentally, they're probably some of the people who've had the hardest time because mm -hmm. they are such important formative years mm -hmm. that were just completely sort of taken away and disrupted. Um, now, we are a resilient people, as I know the Americans are. <laughs> uh, and I think the way that we've kind of got through COVID has been remarkable. But there is still a lot, I think, that we will see. And the education is the one that really worries me. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, in Utah... Thankfully, I mean, it, again, we all, it, it was crazy for us because states were kind of doing different things based on what I thought was crazy is, is in the beginning, it was like everybody's all hands on deck. And then it became, again, political. <laughs> like Everything's politics. <laughs> everything is political. And I just, to me, that was the disheartening part is that I, I felt that people we're unmoored. Mm -hmm. And when we're feeling unmoored, we have to do something to explain it or, or to make us feel better because mm -hmm. we're, we need to latch onto something. We need to feel stable. And we were all completely unmoored and unstable. And I, I think because we just because we had social media, I think it was easy to go to those ideal ideological corners. Mm -hmm. And what we saw, and I don't know if he, it was quite as pronounced here, but it was, it was, it was sort of a unity thing at the beginning, and then it was like 
okay, I don't believe in this. I don't believe in that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to wear a mask. I don't want to get the vaccine. You know, all the things versus, yes, you have to. No, you know, you're evil if you don't. You know, it's this, yeah. it's this, it was a crazy thing, not to mention there was, you know, then we had George Floyd was murdered. And so there was this similar, it became, I think because people were so, I don't know what another word for it is, unmoored, um, fearful, uh, mm-hmm. just feeling like the ground was shaking under you and you didn't know how to, you know, what was up, what's down. I think there was a lot to that. And I think people sort of grabbed on to some political poll, some political flag <laughs> to explain what was happening and to make sense of it. Did you see that here as much? Hard to say. I mean, I, I think in the early stages, less so in this country and that, you know, all our political parties kind of came together to try mm. and tackle this in informally rather than formally. But even so, I think later down the line, though, when the vaccine was kind of being rolled out, we did see this kind of slight polarization mm. of, as, as you rightly said, people who were completely did not want to take the vaccine, which is their you know their their rights and those who would really demonize those people for making that choice yes which was really difficult because ultimately the goal is to try and beat this pandemic right yes we're all in this same goal together and again it comes to the point i made earlier about trying to bring us all together we have one common goal um so it was quite difficult i I, but i think broadly we were kind of okay i'm I'm looking around to the people in the room i don't (laughs) see anyone don't see anyone shaking their head or looking looking suspiciously at me i I don't think there was kind of as much polarization Mm. more broadly but certainly on 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 those sort of freedom issues on vaccines that there there was a bit of that well i think probably Ours was a perfect storm because we were also in the middle of a presidential election. Yes. So, I mean, we were in the middle of our, we were in our election. Mm-hmm. We were in our ca- our campaign. And it was, you know, we had um, a po- political opponents almost wanting us to fail because he was a lieutenant, my husband was a lieutenant governor at the time, almost wanting us to fail in whatever measures we were taking so that, you know, we would be damaged politically. And that was really difficult. And so, and I think we saw that in the presidential election, mm. we saw it in our election. So I think that was maybe the perfect storm of, uh, of awfulness, I, I guess. I, I get that. <laughs> and I, I, I do feel, and I, it's hard for me to say, cause I've never been president, president at Try and get my words out. I've never been present in the States during um, either, you know, midterms or a presidential election or not. It does feel like your elections are much more polarized than ours. Mm -hmm. Ours can get a teeny bit nasty, but I think if you were to translate that into the States, it'd be totally disregarded as being polite. (laughs) Right. Yes. And we can learn a lot from our uh, friends in the UK. (laughs) We can learn a lot from, you know, that at least... Being uh, able to have these conversations, my husband and I are actually, my husband will be the head of the National Governors Association Mm -hmm. come July, and we are going to work all on uh, healthy disagreement. That's going to be the initiative that we're going to work on, because I think in the U.S., the political problems are exacerbated by the fact that we literally have stopped talking to each other in constructive ways usually at all and if and if we are talking to each other it's there's a lot of contempt a lot of vitriol and and so it's it's become dangerous i think to our country so we're we're trying to figure out what we do cuz i feel like the states governors are are kind of the a real powerful non or bipartisan yeah. 
um, group that, that can maybe start to work through some of this stuff. Um, I want to go back before we end. I want to go back to something we talked about a little bit, but I, I want to see if there's some similar things that you're seeing um, with social media as it relates to young people and mental health. So talk to me about that. What we're seeing um, in the in the research is that really that 2011, 12 time when when iPhones and social media really became, you know, part of everybody's lives mm-hmm. and 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 young people started getting on it earlier and earlier. And the research we're seeing is a lot of connection between negative mental health or or poor mental health and social media mm-hmm. use. Are you seeing that? Is it being addressed? In fact, this last legislative session in Utah, we passed two bills mm-hmm. that, two laws that will address um, the way social media companies can target minor children. Mm-hmm. And so in a, in an effort to really try to address um, the algorithms that you talked about, um, targeting our young people. It's one thing if you're, you know, an adult and you're, um, you can say, well, I know they're targeting me or, you know, you've, you've figured out the algorithm. I mean, you say something, I'll probably get 25 ads from, you know, <laughs> the UK and all that. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like yeah. having that, are you seeing that? And is it a concern here, especially as you talk about leveling up? I think it is a huge concern. Um, and I find it really interesting because I, I was kind of, I, I think my first social media I got when I was about 13 on Bebo, mm-hmm. if anyone remembers Bebo, that was a while back now. And so I, I feel like I'm part of the generation that really kind of started with, yes. I don't want to say limited technology. I mean, we had like PlayStations and stuff, but we didn't have that sort of social networking thing. And then that came in when we were teenagers and became dominant as a part of our lives. And now as an adult, it's kind of, it's so central to kind of my job and what I do and stuff. Mm-hmm. Having had not had the technology and now being so kind of dependent on it, I think is really damaging. Yeah. Actually, it, it's fascinating as a, as a kind of academic study, a fascinating topic. But um, you know, I think about things like body image, mm-hmm. particularly for young women, but but for young men too. Seeing these kind of perfectly airbrushed, gorgeous girls on Instagram or what have you. Yeah, you look yourself in the mirror and then feel like crap, don't you? Yes. Because I'm like, why don't I have her tummy? Like, yeah, what exactly. is going on here? Or, you know, my boobs don't look like that, whatever it might be. It is so easy at that age when you have so many hormonal changes happening anyway to really kind of look at that and not feel good enough. Mm-hmm. And then as we talked about the abuse, people can say things anonymously. They can comment in ways that they would never to your face. You know, I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan and she says, um, in you need to calm down, you know, say it in the street, that's a knockout. You say it in a tweet, that's a cop out. And that is so right because people would not say stuff like that to your face, but it affects you. And I think particularly when you're younger, if you're, you know, a teenager and are already trying to find acceptance and trying to find your place in this world, to be told by some random stranger on the internet, you're not good enough, you're ugly, whatever it might be, and worse in many cases, mm-hmm. you know. I, I don't know how many comments I've seen on young people's profiles, you know, saying like things like, kill yourself. Like, why would you say that Crazy. to someone? Crazy. And then if someone's already struggling with mental health issues anyway, who knows if that's the tip that might send them completely over the edge. So I, I really worry about it. And I really struggle with this from a kind of, a kind of ideological perspective and that I am such a kind of freedom lover I don't like restricting business. I, d- I don't like the thought of kind of restricting the internet and regulating mm-hmm. the internet too mm-hmm. much because I think it's a great opportunity for freedom and democracy online, right? 
And yet I also see the damaging impacts that it has on not just young people, but particularly young people. And so it's trying to find that right balance, isn't it, between um, putting in place the right sort of protections and measures while still allowing that freedom and that creativity um, to, to thrive. I don't know what the answer is, but it does worry me. And, you know, my God kids, uh, my eldest God kid is now 13. He's on social media. He doesn't use it that religiously yet, but I know he will. And I I sort of become that fuddy-duddy where it's like, yes, I was using it at your age, but I don't think you should be using it yet and whatever. And it's, you know, massive hypocrite that I am. But I I think if I, you know, had kids of my own, I would be so conscious and I would be that crazy mum who is just monitoring everything that they do in a way that really frustrates them but in a way that is really trying to look out for them um so yeah I I, it worries me hugely um and we are having conversations here at the moment around how best we regulate it we're having conversations around AI as well and how Mm -hmm. we kind of use that for good and try and not allow it to be used for for kind of harm um fascinating topic and you know there are so many great academic writings on it but I think just the impact on people is is huge but I still love social media. Yeah, I know. I know it's today. No, it's really hard. <laughs> it really is. I mean, we yeah. we have those same conversations. Um, you know, for us, it's more the young people. I mean, you know, we don't. You know, I don't know all the laws here, so I, should, I probably shouldn't speak. But like, we don't allow young people to drink alcohol. We don't allow them to smoke. We don't allow because we know there is some harm mm-hmm. for young people, and then adults can make those decisions for themselves. Yeah. But you know, for us, it, it feels like the research is getting to a point where we're, we're not only just seeing correlation between, um, you know, self-harm and depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, but we're seeing a causation. Mm-hmm. There's some studies recently there that are showing causation. And so we're at that point, you feel like you, we've, we've done this great experiment on our kids' brains and, <laughs> yeah. and you know, the, they're just not at a, a place where they can, you know, logically work through. Anyways, it's just been mm-hmm. a really hard, because again, we're a very conservative state. We're a very conservative people. We don't also want to do that. But at the same time, we feel like, you know, we, we did this with drug opioid companies. We've done this with, you know, a lot of different companies where we're saying, no, you, you do know the effect. You do know the harm, and yet you're still targeting young people. Yeah. So how do we? It's a it's a tough one to work through. It's so hard. I mean, I mean, there are studies that show the kind of sort of dopamine impact yes. that, that are very similar to opioid use, which which is crazy to think yeah. that the, the the chemical impact in your brain of regularly using social media and then the withdrawals when you're taken yes. away from it is similar to using like heavy drugs. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. And so part of me thinks maybe we should start thinking about it in that way. Mm-hmm. But again, finding that balance between freedom <laughs> and and kind of doing what's what, what's kind of right is it's so hard. Yeah, it, it really is. It's a tricky one. I think, you know, our, our U.S. Congress is, is, you know, putting forth some of these ideas and, and there may be some, you know, holding. I mean, we held, we held tobacco companies responsible. We, you know, we've, mm-hmm. we've done some of these things. So we feel like, you know, it's not unprecedented. It just feels unprecedented with this because the technology is new. Yeah. And, and that's so. another reason to get more young people into politics. That's exactly we, right. Well, we sort of understand the technology yes. and, you know, you, you see sessions sometimes. I mean, we see them in Britain when there are sort of evidence sessions at select committees and things where some of the questions asked, you can tell the person doesn't really understand what on earth they're talking about. They're asking yeah. this question of this tech giant, but I have no clue what they're asking and no clue what the answer means. 
And it's just another reason why I think getting young people involved is really important because they can really help us on this journey. That's exactly right. I think we we all saw some of those, you know, Facebook executives before the U.S. Congress and we were all like, oh, shoot, don't ask that. <laughs> I was careful to say select committees. That's so right. not to comment on that. But yeah, no, they, <laughs> so, so, some of the questions were interesting. I'll yeah, put it that yeah. way. <laughs> no, that's so great. Well, this is, I love finding the commonalities. I love finding uh, ways that we connect and, and just... I, I go throughout the world. Like I said, I've been on a long, long trade mission. We've been on several, and I just find that humans are humans wherever we go, and we have the same needs, we have the same desires. And, and you know, we, we do... One thing that we've been working on a lot is this, and I've been specifically thinking about belonging. Mm-hmm. And I think as, you know, it relates to our conversation about social media, belonging is a need, an absolute need for every human. Mm -hmm. We need to have belonging. Now, whether we find that belonging in really healthy ways and and ways to connect, if we get involved in politics and we find our belonging there, or if we're not going to find it there and if we don't have opportunities to find it there, we will find it in unhealthy ways. We will find it in hate. And that's what's scary to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, I love what you're doing. I love the leveling up. I think that's a way that we, we share this, this idea of bringing communities together and, and making sure that everyone has opportunities. So thank you for what you're doing. And we're following it closely and, and we love to connect. And if you're ever in Utah, we'd love to have you. Oh, I'll make it happen. <laughs> okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you.